0: Today's guest is Gary Marcus, author of the recent book Rebooting AI.
1: Thrilled to be here, Jim. Hey,
0: great to have you. Gary's the founder and CEO of Robust AI, a new company with the goal to make robots smart, collaborative, robust, safe, flexible, and genuinely autonomous. Pryor is the founder and CEO of Geometric Intelligence, a machine learning company acquired by Uber in 2016. He's the author of five books, including one of my faves from the past, which I had no idea was him, called Guitar Zero, which both me and my wife loved. If you like music and you like cognitive science, go read Guitar Zero, but read the new one, Rebooting AI, first. Gary's also a cognitive psychologist who's published extensively in fields ranging from human and animal behavior to neuroscience, genetics, linguistics, evolutionary psychology, and artificial intelligence. According to his website, he's perhaps the youngest ever professor emeritus at NYU. I should also note that he attended Hampshire College, as did an earlier guest on the show, physicist Lee Smolin. Must be something interesting going on up there.
1: They taught us to speak truth to power at Hampshire College, and that's what Lee and I have in common. We are both um, going after some very popular views, and a lot of people don't like that, but we speak the truth as we see it.
0: I like that. I can see exactly that that template is the case because both you and Lee are challenging the conventional wisdom in a major way.
1: And neither of us are afraid to do it. I mean, doesn't win us a lot of friends in certain quarters, but, you know, science doesn't progress by people being chummy with each other. It progresses by recognizing limitations and taking the next step.
0: Absolutely. A significant part of your new book is an attempt to be more cautious and realistic about the short-term prospects for AI without denying its long-term potential. On what I might call the uh, oversold side, you lay out a three-part description of what you think a big part of the problem is. You call it the AI chasm. Could you take us through that?
1: Well, there are multiple parts to it, but I think we, we could start with the gullibility gap. So the gullibility gap is that We are very prone to seeing small signals of intelligent behavior as if there's more intelligence there than there really is. So classic example is Eliza, which was just a dumb keyword matching thing that people would talk to as if it was a psychiatrist. And some people thought it was really a psychiatrist. So it would match things. You would say, I'm having trouble uh, with my girlfriend. And it would say, well, tell me about your family. And people thought that was really smart, but it didn't actually know what a girlfriend was. It didn't know what a relationship was. It didn't know what a family was. It was just parroting those things back. It might as well have been a parrot. And lots of people thought that it was smart, so they're gullible. They see a small sample of what looks like intelligence. Our brains didn't evolve to say, hey, that person's intelligent and that's really just a machine, and just get suckered in. Another example of that is there was a guy who was so trusting of his Tesla after it had driven him around for a few hours or a few days or whatever it was, that he thought it'd be okay to watch Harry Potter in the back, and and we all know what happened to that person, right? They watched Harry Potter while their car drove for them, and it ran into a trailer that took a left turn on uh, a highway and the person was killed. So, you know, it can be really dangerous to trust machines too much, but we have a strong tendency to do that. So the second thing that we talked about is, is the illusory progress gap. You see a little bit of progress on some piece of a problem and you think that that means that we've solved the whole problem so you get some system that does a tiny bit of language like it recognizes um your request to turn off the lights alexa turn off their lights and you suddenly think well ai has solved the understanding problem or you get a system that can interpret a few of your requests on google and you think that google must understand natural language well, of course google doesn't understand natural language it understands a small fragment of natural language but it's very easy to fool it and it can't actually go and integrate all the information from the web it can just put together a bunch of web pages that match in keywords or use synonyms for your keywords and things like that. Um, But just because Google can do a piece of it doesn't mean you can actually have a conversation with it. So we're very prone to seeing small steps as if they mean uh, more than they are. The truth is that AI is really, really hard. We've been working on it for sixty years, and we don't have machines that understand the world that can build what I would call a discourse representation of the things that we're talking about and interpret that. It just doesn't exist yet. And yet, people write newspaper stories as if you know this latest little bit of progress was huge progress. Another example was um, Microsoft beat this thing called Squad or you could argue about whether it be, but we'll, we'll say uh, for present purposes, is a beat squad, which was a, a test of underlining text as you read passages. And that sounds a bit like reading. In fact, it involves a bit of reading, but just because you can read what's underlineable in the text doesn't mean that you can make inferences that stem beyond what's written, even though those are obvious to any person. And so the media accounts were like, Humans are going to be replaced by robots because machines can read as well as humans. But any human, even like a nine-year-old, can read things that aren't explicitly stated and infer the connective tissue between the things that are stated and the ones that aren't. And no writer worth their salt will tell you absolutely everything about everything because it would be incredibly tedious. So things are left out. You don't tell people that if you drop something that it hits the ground because people know that if it's dropped, it will hit the ground. But the machine doesn't realize that if it's not said explicitly in the text.
0: Absolutely. And the third part of your uh, AI chasm, you called the robustness gap.
1: What the robustness gap is about is we have a lot of systems that work, say, 60% of the time or 70% of the time, but don't work 100% or even close to 100%. And that's fine for some things. Like if you're recommending books and you liked my Guitar Zero book and you don't like my new book, well, you know, I'm sorry, and you wasted a little money, but nobody dies. But if you have a driverless car system that works 90% of the time and 1 in 10 times goes out and has an accident, that would be a disaster. So there are many systems out there that work a little bit. I was just having an argument on Twitter with someone about a math system that's um, between, depending on how you count, 50 and 75% right. Well, it's idiotic to use a system that is 75% right when you've got a calculator that's 100% right. And if you're only 75% right, you're not really that robust. And if you're 50, then I don't even know why you're pretending that you can do math at all.
0: They might as well use a coin almost. Yeah, the uh, robustness question is obviously hugely important and speaks to you know what I, I think within the popular imagination is the most significant salient application of AI, which is self-driving cars. I actually looked this up and it's useful to keep in mind that the uh, number of miles you'd have to drive to kill somebody with a human driver, and that includes a drunk one, a sleeping one, and the one that just had an argument with its girlfriend, is 10 million miles.
1: I think the average is one in 134 million is the average. I mean, of course, it can happen your first day of driving, but I think it's on average 130. Yeah. But even if it were 10 million, one in 10 million, it would still be much, much more reliable than your smartest driverless car, which is probably a Waymo. Um, you know, look the published statistics, and what those statistics say is that driverless cars need an intervention about one in every 10,000 miles. That's, you know, many orders of magnitude away from the human uh, safety statistic for fatalities.
0: Yeah. And I remember at the time I looked this up, the total number of miles by Waymo was less than 10 million. Right. So I go, okay, no wonder it hadn't killed anybody.
1: Right. Right, So you're raising a, um, or making a a good second point, which is we don't even have the right number of miles to even begin to think that we've achieved reliability. So if you had a million accident-free miles that still wouldn't really be anywhere near enough, big enough sample to establish with certainty that you were as safe or, or safer than people. And I was making a second point, which is the reality is that these cars need human help every 10,000 miles or on average ones in 10,000 miles. That's the best in in breed. And that's just not good enough for what we call level five autonomy, where I pick you up at point a, take you to point B the way that an Uber works. So, you know, people sometimes, um, like to make fun of Uber, Uber drivers, but Uber drivers are way safer, way more reliable, <laughs> require less help. Um, human-driven Uber cars than, than do, um, you know, your average human. I mean, your, your average driverless car, excuse me.
0: Yeah, I did a quick look up and we were both wrong about the, uh, the actual human kill rate, which is 1.25 deaths per 100 million vehicle miles. So that would be what, about one in every uh, 75 million miles, something like that. So, but it's still a, uh, a, probably still a bigger number than all the miles driven by all the self-driving cars.
1: You will send me a link because I have seen other numbers.
0: Yeah, this one's from the, uh, well, whoops, it's from uh, Wikipedia, maybe it isn't that good. But quoting the National uh, Safety Council, using methodology that differs, well, anyway, it's in the same ballpark, 100 million, plus or minus.
1: 100 million is, is what I usually hear.
0: Yeah, and doubtful, I don't know the current number, but I wonder if, the total number of miles driven by all the cars not under human intervention uh, amounts to 100 million yet don't know another uh, way you've stated this problem is that in a word current ai is narrow it works for particular tasks it's programmed for but when it encounters something that's even a little bit different it uh, doesn't know what to do my uh, friend ben gertzel likes to give the example that alpha go as amazing as it was you know trained on a 19 by 19 board if you put it on an 18 by 18 board it wouldn't play very well if you asked it to play checkers it couldn't play at all
1: that's right. We, we use that example in, in rebooting AI as well of, of, of playing on a different board um, and, and we riff on it. So Al- AlphaGo doesn't, for example, even know that there is a board with stones on it. It doesn't actually have the ability to recognize um, stones in different lighting conditions the way any Go player would be. It doesn't know how to pick up the stones. It doesn't understand that stones um, on a board are a metaphor for territory and human uh, battles or whatever, he, he really just knows about that grid of that size, and that's all it knows about. And you could retrain it to play on eighteen by eighteen, but you'd need it to play another thirty million games.
0: Absolutely, we'll get to the thirty million also later, which I consider to be a big hole in the uh, in the current approaches. Getting back to where you were first going, you know, it seems to me that an awful lot of uh, the difference between current AIs and how humans or even our dogs deal with the world is we have context and world models. Mm -hmm. Here's a quote from your book. Even a young child encountering a cheese grater for the first time can figure out why it has holes with sharp edges, which parts allow cheese to drop through, which parts you grasp with your fingers and so on. But no existing AI can properly understand how the shape of an object is related to its function. And all that's got to be driven by world models, you know, uh, psychological physics, all kinds of stuff. Uh, Does that make sense to you?
1: I, I mean, that's exactly what we're arguing, is, is that the current neural networks, they learn a lot about statistics, but they don't really build a model of the world. So you can have a conversation, or not have a conversation, but test the language abilities of this thing called GPT-2, um, which is one of the most powerful language models right now, over at com. And if you type in questions of the form, here's a sentence, and then you fill in the blanks, uh, you get really bizarre answers that show that even though it knows the statistics of what's going on, it doesn't actually understand um, what's going on. I was just going to see if I could quickly pull up an example of the kind of thing I was playing around with the other day. A water bottle breaks and all the water comes out leaving. And you know what kind of answer do you expect? Like, well, if all the water is out, you should have roughly zero. But it says roughly, in one example, 200 gallons of water. Like, no water bottle in the real world leaves 200 gallons of water you know, after it's broken. Or here's another example from the same thing. Water bottle breaks and all the water comes out, leaving roughly dot dot dot. And it says six to eight drops of beer. Well, that's funny, but it doesn't show that the system actually understands that when the water comes out of the bottle, you basically have an empty bottle. Um, and there's just millions of examples um, of this sort.
0: And that's frankly what I would expect from something like deep learning, which is essentially a uh, you know very large structure for capturing statistical regularities. And that's something different than what we might call artificial general intelligence.
1: Maybe even before we get to artificial general intelligence, just to emphasize your last point, a step to artificial intelligence is you see what's going on in the world with your sensors, which you know, might be cameras or people type things in, whatever. And what you're trying to do is to build a model of what's going on right now. So your listeners, for example, have a model that we have two people that are talking to each other. You may not know exactly where they are, but you can, um, if you're a listener, you in your model, for example, think that they're both English speakers. They're both knowledgeable about machine learning. They're both opinionated. And so you're you're building up um, some view of what's going on. And then you use that in order to interpret the next thing that goes on. Well, That cumulative process, the model building process, is one of the fundamental things that AI just hasn't solved yet, and deep learning in particular doesn't really solve. So it evades it by having large amounts of statistics, and sometimes that tricks people, but that also leads to the lack of robustness that we're talking about. I would argue you can't possibly get to a general intelligence if you don't have that process of cumulative model building as one of the core things that you do.
0: Yeah, that seems very reasonable to me.
1: It seems reasonable to you, but it's been very hard for me to get the field to engage in that. So you have a lot of people that are working on deep learning. They're extremely well paid. They're excited about what they're doing. And they're not really familiar with the literature on cognitive psychology, which a lot of which is about um, cognitive model building, and people just don't really appreciate that point. So, you know, Jeff Hinton is saying you shouldn't listen to Gary Marcus because he thinks that neural networks don't understand, but look at Google Translate; it understands. And the thing is that, that Google Translate does not have a deep understanding of what's going on. It does not build up the kind of model that we're talking about. So you could feed it in a passage from Harry Potter. It might translate it by looking at the statistics of how this phrase connects to this other phrase. But if you asked it at the end what happened in this scene, it doesn't know where to start. Because it's not building up um, an interpretation of you know, this person wound up in this room and they had a magic wand or whatever it is that they did. It's just doing a kind of like um, like China, the old Searle uh, Chinese room thing. It's just matching little pieces together. It's not constructing um, these cumulative models of, of the narrative that it's interpreting in just the way that we were talking about. And the field does not want to engage in that issue. And so it's kind of a little bit delusional about how much progress. It goes back to the il- illusory progress thing. Uh, just because you can do machine translation doesn't mean that you have a system that can interpret a narrative.
0: Yeah, probably why it seems uh, reasonable to, to me is since 2014, I've spent a considerable amount of time uh, reading the cognitive science and cognitive neuroscience literature and particularly focusing on the intersection between consciousness and cognition. So I have, uh, you know, a relatively rich understanding of these things, and I use that as my uh, existence proof for artificial intelligence, and compare other approaches to that. And so I can see where they're falling short. As an example, the people in the deep learning side who are so insistent on deep learning uber alles, I uh, had a chat one time with a guy named Jürgen Schmidhuber, who I'm sure is a name you're familiar with. And he kept saying just over and over that his LSTM version of deep learning was Turing complete and then brushed aside any need for any other approach. Turing complete.
1: Yeah. Sometimes I feel like people in the field understand math a lot better than they do psychology, linguistics, the cognitive sciences more generally. So, I mean, it, it's not surprising that if you dig into those fields, you start to understand what the problem is about cognition. Um, Whereas if your approach is purely mathematical, then you get very good at kind of moving the statistics around, but you don't necessarily learn what needs to be solved. If you think about consciousness or even just cognition in general, a lot of it is about constructing narratives essentially and internal models. And that's mostly not on the radar. To Schmidhuber's credit, he's actually got a paper about building internal models uh, last year. It's an interesting paper. Um, But by and large, the field does not engage in that set of issues. It does not engage in the cognitive science literature in general. So it's not that these people aren't very, very bright. They're extremely good at what they do. But like the models that they make, they're narrow in a certain way. And I I think that that um, impedes progress to some extent.
0: And uh, even though they're focused on the math side, which many of them are, I'd say that a a rich understanding of the uh, mathematics of learning ought to make you suspicious of one size fits all. Particularly, one of my very favorite results is the no free lunch theorem, which basically states that there is no best way to solve any problem or to search any database and that any such general statement ought to be inadmissible without evidence from the domain in question. So that would be my response to someone who says, this technique is the answer, period. I say such things are an empirical question. Let's see how they work in specific domains.
1: Right. Just to rephrase that no free lunch theorem, it's really that there's no one technique that is going to be general across all problems. So you may have a specific problem where there is a best technique, but there is no. it is provable um, by that theorem that you're talking about that there is not a universal technique. And so when a Schmidhuber or something like that says, well, I've got this universal technique, you should keep your hand on your wallet um, and realize it's actually going to be good for some problems and not others. What's interesting about human biology is that we have a lot of different mechanisms for solving many different problems that we've gotten over evolutionary time some of them are you know pretty good and some of them have problems and so forth but we have many different techniques so observational learning for example is not the same thing as learning language or as um uh you know, calibrating what you're going to do with your hands as you catch a tennis ball. Yep. So there, we actually use multiple techniques. There isn't a one size fits all, as you're saying. Um, and there's, there's a long tradition in intellectual history of people kind of overreaching in that way. So for example, behaviorism tried to capture all of psychology in a single set of equations. And you know, some of what it said is true, like we're all motivated by reward. But the fact that we're motivated by reward doesn't give you any of the nuance, for example, about how we do physical reasoning to understand whether something's going to tip over.
0: You're absolutely right. There is, for many people, a tendency towards looking for one answer. And in fact, why I often say that I, when I once I get to know somebody of, uh, with some intellectual depth in the sciences, I make a determination. Do they understand the no free lunch theorem or don't they? And I would say it's about 75% they do not.
1: Yeah. Well, the related point, I I agree with you. Um, I think it's a a good litmus test. Um, The the related point is if you don't know it, then you tend not to appreciate the value of nativism. So everybody appreciates that learning is part of how we get to be who we are. We acquire a lot of information from culture. But one implication of the no free lunch theorem is that having innate priors for particular kinds of problems, um, innate knowledge about particular kinds of problems can be really helpful. So if you were not born knowing that there were persisting objects in the world, and you just had a lot of kind of sense perception, it would take a long time to figure out from all those correlations that objects are even things to look at. And so people that really appreciate the no free lunch theorem, I think are often much more receptive to there being some kind of nativism in biology. And I I would argue that AI is not going to proceed until we similarly allow some innateness in there. And a lot of people don't want it.
0: I know it seems very weird. They think that from very basic first principles, we can solve the world. And maybe they can, but it doesn't seem to be the way it's been solved previously. And I like the example you give, actually, of objects. Objects are core to the work I do on the intersection between attention and consciousness. Mm. And from my digging around the literature, it seems clear to me that objects are pretty damn innate. Right. Uh, You cannot look at the world without having it chopped up into objects for you. And that seems to happen at a very young age.
1: I mean, we can't absolutely prove this, but it it seems very, very likely. I like to, um, you know, people, humans don't like to think that humans have innate stuff in it. There's a a strong bias. My friend Iris Behrend has actually documented that empirically with some papers that are coming out. So um, as Lila Gleitman used to say, empiricism is innate, you know, believing that, that we don't have anything built in is is a weird innate bit about human psychology but if i show you a picture of a baby ibex climbing down the side of a mountain a few hours after its birth there's just no coherent way to do that other than to think that that baby ibex already understands that there is a three-dimensional geometry to the world that relates to constituent parts of the things that it's traversing like you have to assume that or else you just can't explain what the behavior is you can't say that in you know 180 minutes of experience that the baby ibex has learned all this stuff about objects in three-dimensional geometry it just does not make any sense
0: it's funny that you mentioned the ibex because what i use as my model uh animal for my uh conscious cognition work is the white-tailed deer and why did i choose that i've been a deer hunter for 50 years so i have a fair amount of theory of mind about how deer behave from the time they're born to the time they're you know the uh, the top buck in a, in a woods and uh, i find that to be very very useful way to think about problems of this sort, because you're exactly right. A white-tailed deer is up and running within two hours and is clearly navigating a complex, object-filled space. If it didn't understand it, it'd be running into trees all the time,
1: mm-hmm. right? And then, I mean, you know, systems that can actually navigate trees, like Skydio's drones, they, they have a lot of innate structure in order to help them recognize that. Yep. They, they don't learn that from scratch.
0: And we'll go back to later when we talk talk about hybrid systems, about how perhaps, in you know, a sub-symbolic neural net approaches, may conform at least approximately to our perceptual and the higher end of perceptual object recognition systems in a hybrid architecture. That's something we'll get to later. Another problem I see with neural nets, I think you pointed this out as well, is the very large number of examples that these systems so far have had to get any reasonable level of confidence. Probably the world's best chess player has played maybe 50,000 or 100,000 games as compared to the hundreds of millions that these self-learning AIs have to have. And let me give you an example from my own personal history that really uh, kicked my interest in this small learning set size and got me uh, hooked up uh, with Josh Tenenbaum up at MIT, and I've chatted a fair amount about this problem. Is one of my hobbies since I was a kid was uh, war games. I've been playing uh, war games since I was 10 years old, which is 55 years ago, starting with the old Avalon Hill cardboard pieces on maps kind of thing, and I played everything up to the current state-of-the-art computerized games. And anyway, about 2014, right when I was getting interested in cognitive science, cognitive neuroscience, and AGI, I uh, started to learn a new game called Advanced Tactics Gold. For people who are old-timey, turn-based strategy war game players, this is like the ultimate game, damn close to it. It's huge. It has every aspect. It's got sort of a rudimentary politics, economics, all kinds of different military units that you can mix and match. And I did a, just a very rough calculation and decided that it had a branching rate per turn on the order of 10 to the 60th. Compare that to checkers, which is three or four, chess, maybe 30, and go, maybe 250. Advanced Tactics Gold was 10 to the 60th, so way higher search space than these other games. And sure enough, when I played it the first time, it kicked my butt really badly. I mean, it was humiliating. The next three times, it beat me easily. Then we had two games that were pretty good struggles, and then game seven, I beat it, and I've never lost again. I've probably played it 100 times. And so, hmm, how could that be? How could I learn so quickly? I went back and looked at what was my knowledge base of having been a war game player for 55 years, and I estimated that I'd perhaps played 2,500 games to completion across maybe 200 titles. That's not a lot, 2,500 games. I'd also perhaps read 200 books on military history and strategy. So what seems like, you know, not a whole lot of input, you know, 200 books is uh, just a few seconds of download today on a fast computer and 2,500 games isn't very many, but I was able to beat a state-of-the-art 10 to the 60th branching rate game after seven tries. How did I do that? That question has been nagging at me ever since. And that's just a qualitatively different approach than these brute force, uh, deep learning approaches.
1: Well, I mean, I don't know anything about the particulars of the system that you were playing, but I would say that human beings have a lot of concepts. like notion of evolving an economy or notion of say splitting forces or flanking the opposing forces and those concepts are often very helpful Um, or the what is it the uda loop you know orient uh i forget the second O. decide and act
0: observe decide and act yeah though in this case it was since it's not real time uh, uda loops apply in real time games for sure but not really in in turn-based games but uh, certainly the other things definitely do. You know, the, turns out that the basics of strategy and tactics happen to work in this game, and I had induced strategy and tactics from playing 2,500 games and reading 200 books, uh, which is relatively a small amount of input to have you know, been able to produce those models and principles and apply them in a complex setting.
1: So I don't know the specific game that you're talking about. But there are lots of general concepts that humans have that you can start to apply quickly, whereas most of the current best systems are fundamentally just learning about contingencies. They don't have a lot of abstraction there. So if you're in a game where there's a limited number of possibilities, and it can be a pretty broad limit. You've got enough data, you can kind of graph out a space and interpolate between the cases that you've done, if you're a machine. If you're a person, you're using concepts like, I'm going to divide the other person's forces or I flank them in this way, or maybe use the OODA loop of uh, orient, observe, decide, act. Um, there are lots of conceptual frameworks that you can bring to a war game or to kind of any problem in the world. The narrower it is, the easier it is to use brute force. The more that your options percolate, the more that you need some grasp of what's actually going on in order to perform well.
0: Yeah, In fact, I uh, refer to that in my own work as heuristics induction. You know, in a game with branching of 10 to the 60th per turn, there's no way you can do anything like deep learning, reinforcement learning to try to learn that problem space. You have to create some heuristics. And uh, how do you create the heuristics? By some form of induction. I wish I knew how that was done by us humans.
1: Well, you know, the other thing that you did that a machine, current machine cannot actually do is to read a book. So, people forget that current ai systems are essentially illiterate deepmind showed off that they quote mastered go without human knowledge which is not actually correct there was some human knowledge there we could talk about it but they sort of made a virtue of the fact that they don't actually know how to put in a book about go into their systems or a book about military strategy and Go is very well-documented. The particular war game that you're playing, maybe there aren't any books about it, but you can read books about other things and transfer that knowledge about other things um, to this new game. So you can imagine, for example, a deep learning system, learning how to play a first-person shooter where you attack zombies, but it doesn't learn enough about how first-person shooters work in general to be able to transfer that to a first-person shooter where you blow up Nazis. the, the system, what it's learning is very superficial, very close to the bone, whereas what you're learning as a human is about more abstract things, like in a game that is a first-person shooter, where am I likely to find enemies? How am I likely to hide? How do I change, you know, weapons and so forth? You're learning abstract ideas that you can then apply in a new environment. That doesn't mean that there isn't some very specific knowledge. So you learn, you know, the corners of this map in this game and that doesn't help you with that game that has a different map. But you learn a lot of general things like how to work with maps, how to work with inventories, and so forth. You can apply from one to the next. There is no current AI system, deep learning or otherwise, uh, that can really do that, can, as you said, induce the heuristics. So you induce heuristics about how do I manage an inventory or how do I read a map or how do I accumulate a map from partial information or um, how do I duck behind an obstacle? You're trying to learn these abstract skills that you can reuse. And what we lack right now is a way of building reusable skills. Not saying it can't be done, some form of AI someday will do it. And that someday might be in 10 years or 20 years or 50 years, Um, it will happen. But the current technology doesn't give us a way to accumulate reusable skills. So instead, people learn things so-called end-to-end. They learn the entire game from top to bottom and nothing that they can carry with them to the next game over.
0: And again, that limits you to games with relatively low branching rates. It does. You know, I believe, at least what I have read. I haven't actually used uh, reinforcement learning on a project, but I have read a fair amount about it and came away saying, yeah, it ought to work good, but only within domains that have relatively low branching rates.
1: Well, you know, a really telling talk that I saw the other day was by Peter Abiel. We were both speaking at the Rotman Institute in Toronto, and he's been one of the pioneers in deep learning for robots. And he gave a very honest, candid talk, and he said, here's the fundamental issue. We can do all kinds of crazy stuff in the lab, like wasn't his lab, but the Rubik's Cube stuff that people talked about recently was an extension of work that he was um, part of the team that developed. I think it was his students. Um, you know, so you know to remind you that rubik's cube the system didn't actually learn how to solve a cube but it did learn how to do the manipulation uh to to turn the faces of the cube um and that's very exciting but you don't see stuff like that in the real world so people build laboratory demonstrations that rubik's cube had like sensors inside and you know it's in a well-lit room or whatever you build a robot to go into the real world and things just don't work that well. So um, it's okay maybe in a factory environment where things are very, very well controlled, but more open-ended the world is, which is related to your notion of branching factor, um, it's not identical to, but related to it, the more trouble robots have. So you know, the best-selling domestic robot of all time is still Roomba that doesn't manipulate objects at all. And nobody knows how to build something that could do what my housekeeper can do of like um, tidying up a room that might have any kind of stuff in it.
0: Yep, or the famous Steve Wozniak test. You know, I thought this was a very clever alternative to the Turing test, which is to plop a robot down in a random American kitchen and tell it to make a cup of coffee. Good luck. Nothing could do that currently, right? Not not even close.
1: Not even close.
0: Not even those cool robots from Boston Dynamics, Right.
1: No, I mean the Boston Dynamics doesn't really specialize in manipulation at all. They have, um, you know, one robot that does some manipulation, most of which has been teleoperated. The claim to fame for their robots is that, like, they can walk around and you can kick them and they'll they'll remain stable, which is a kind of robustness, which is really important. But they're not robust and autonomous, able to make their own decisions. Let's say, like I'm looking at my room right now, and there's a fan that really should be put away. The summer time is over, and so you know what kind of robot is going to be able to pick up this fan. This one particular one is a battery-operated fan with a long stock, and so you'd have to go over to it, decide which axis is convenient, and then grip it. And then you'd realize that the bottom piece is actually just a holder, and it would drop, and you'd have to compensate for that. Be no problem for my housekeeper if I said, "Could you move that?" and There's no machine that knows how to do that. It just literally does not exist yet.
0: Or a five-year-old kid could do it,
1: right? No problem. I have one, so I know it for a fact that she could do that without problem.
0: I remember being five. In fact, my mother, the wise woman that she was when we were out of school, thought it would be uh, interesting to teach us how to do housework, right? (laughs) And and so uh, just like uh, Tom Sawyer, uh, at five years old, you're interested in learning anything, right? So we learned how to clean a house, how to clean a bathroom, how to straighten up, all that stuff.
1: Show me the robot that can whitewash a fence. I will be impressed.
0: Exactly. Now, we touched on this in passing, but I want to hop back to it, which gets to my mind, which Damn close to the meat of the matter of the next big step. I mean, heuristic induction is a really big one, but another one is what, I, what you call, I think, and what I call real language understanding. It seems like untruly understanding language is a great bottleneck to further progress in the kinds of general purpose AIs that, that we've been talking about. In fact, you gave a nice example, which was AI programs that could automatically synthesize the vast medical literature it would be a true revolution. Computers that could read as well as PhD students, but with raw computational horsepower of Google, would revolutionize science, too. But we're not even close to that. Hell, we don't even have convincing chatbots. I tried a few, supposedly the top ones, and they're not even close. They wouldn't fool me for uh, two minutes, let alone 20 minutes. What do you think the issues are around real language understanding and what real language understanding is and what we might see there in the future?
1: So we've been trying to coin a phrase of deep understanding to distinguish between deep learning. Um, So you could say that there's a shallow understanding in systems now, right? So Alexa can understand particular requests or you could feed into this GPT-2 system. And if you're talking about Um, I don't know, baseball, it'll come back with baseball related terms. Or if you talk to it about chairs, it'll come back with terms that are chairs. So you could say there's a superficial understanding, but there's not a deep understanding. There's no way that the system understands that um, chairs are for sitting on, or if you took away one of the legs, the chair might fall over. And so it wouldn't be as good a chair to sit on. So there are a couple of things that are missing. One we already talked about is these cumulative models of the world. That's what language is about is I build in your head a model of something and then you kind of check your model against mine or you elaborate it. That whole process is missing. And then common sense is missing. So one of the ways that we can do this, I can tell you, could you move that chair over there is because you know what a chair does and what it's for. So you know a reasonable orientation for that chair is with the flat surface up so that somebody could sit on it and that spinning it upside down so that they would have to sit between the um, feet of the chair is not a reasonable thing because that doesn't accommodate the way that people's butts work. Um, and so you know something about how the world works and you integrate that with a model of the things that we're talking about. And that's what language is about. And that none of that's really there yet.
0: So I'm going to hop ahead on my uh, questions list because uh, you opened up something that's interesting, which is common sense or knowledge engineering, as we used to call it, uh, good old fashioned AI or Knowledge engineers are the closest approximation we had. Graduate students who would create representations of knowledge or common sense within some domain. And then we've had some larger scale projects like Psyche and ConceptNet. And yet, none of that seems to have really gotten the kind of traction that we need. any thoughts on why not? And is there something like the kind of brute force way to extract common sense that deep learning has been able to extract statistical regularities?
1: Well, there's a whole lot of different questions there. So I may lose some, but I'll, I'll start with psych. Psych is the to my knowledge, the biggest knowledge engineering project of all time, although there might be some medical taxonomies that that are in some ways similar in scope. Um, And what Doug Lennett tried to do, and is in fact still trying to do, is to codify much of the world's knowledge in a machine interpretable form. I think that the specifics of how he did it maybe aren't quite what we would do today. So, he did it very much in formal, logical terms. And that may or may not be flexible enough. So some things that people would emphasize now would be uncertainty, probability, distributions. So when I know about chairs, I don't just know some formal things about them, but I know kind of the distribution of chairs that I've seen before and what their properties are. That kind of stuff I believe is not represented in there. Um, I think as a system, one of the issues that it has is there's actually not a lot of natural language interface. It's mostly the formal logic part. And it's possible that taking Lenit's reasoning system in conjunction with a good natural language interface might actually be very useful. Because that doesn't exist, I think it limits the utility of what he's got. Generally, it's regarded as a failure. I'm not sure that's actually the right interpretation. Um, It might be that he solved a piece of the problem, but since he hasn't solved the whole problem, it's not very commercial. And Then people infer falsely that because he hasn't solved the whole problem, been a commercial success, that there's no value there. and That may not be correct. Um, as I'm implying, I would do it differently nowadays. I would have a lot more representation of uncertainty. But he's got pretty good arguments that you do want the power of of a formal logic and not just a first order logic. You want to be able to represent things like I believe that you think that such and such is going on. And that requires fairly sophisticated logic. There is no formal argument out there that he's wrong. Um, There's a lot of people who are allergic to what he did, but none of them, so far as I know, have a serious alternative. Maybe the closest alternative is some of the work that Agent Choi has been doing recently at University of Washington and the Allen Institute for AI. I think it's very interesting, but it's not as stable and robust in drawing an inference as LeNet stuff. Um, and, you know, there's probably room for both. And ultimately, I think you want to do some learning stuff like Choi is trying to do. And you want to have the formal logical reasoning abilities that Leonard emphasized, and you need to bring this together in some fashion.
0: Interesting. I've also wondered about Psych. You know, It's been out there for, I don't know, 20, 30 years. And I've sort of seen it out the corner of my eye, but I've never done a deep dive into it.
1: The best currently publicly available thing is Leonard has a piece in Forbes, I believe, on uh, making inferences about Romeo and Juliet that just came out earlier this year. Um, and he actually walked me through some of it. And when it works, it's really impressive how much it can infer about like why certain characters took certain actions. What's unimpressive about it is there's a lot of it's a sort of handwritten about it. Romeo and Juliet. So it doesn't really teach you how the knowledge would be acquired. There isn't really a natural language front end to it. But once that knowledge is represented there, it can make much more sophisticated inferences than anything else that's out there. And so you know, maybe it's been miscast, at least in people's minds. Um, you know, What it's really good at, I think, is making logical inferences about the nature of people and actions and, and uh, their interaction with one another. Nobody else really has that right now. Um, it's not an end-to-end system. And what people are trying to build now are systems that kind of go from pixels to action. And if we could get those to work, that would be great. But the reality is they're incredibly fragile. And we give in the book the example of the DeepMind Atari game system, a re- reinforcement learning system or deep reinforcement learning system that plays Atari games and you read the original paper and it says it learns to break through the tunnel and have the, you know, the paddle hits the ball through the wall and it does that ricocheting thing. But that's that's this um, illusion of progress and gullibility gap. Just because you see the machine and think that that's what it's doing doesn't mean that that's what the machine's actually doing. If you move the paddle up a few pixels as Vicarious did in a really cool paper, then you see the system doesn't actually understand anything at all. It doesn't really understand that there's a technique. When the paddle is moved a few pixels from all these memorized uh, positions, the system is, just makes mistakes left and right.
0: Well, that's how you know reinforcement learning works, right? It just basically takes one step after the other, and then it figures out at the end, was there a payoff? And then it upvotes all those links that led to a payoff at the end. So that's what you'd expect.
1: And if, if you have enough data relative to, let's say, a particular level in a video game, it, it can play that game better than a human. But that doesn't mean that it can play the next level. And you could think of this demo as kind of another level. Okay, we will, you know, in level two, the, the battle will be in a different place. And it's, it's at a loss. It has to start over to learn that new level. It doesn't have, um, emphasizing something I said earlier, transferable knowledge about what a wall is or you know, the kind of physics of that game. It just has this narrow knowledge about contingencies within this level. If you play enough times, you can get contingencies for anything. Uh, But the question is, what do you do when the world changes?
0: Yeah, if the world's small enough, you can do that. If the world's small enough.
1: That's right. And it is you know, you've know you made this point in a diff- different way, talking about branching factors and, and, and so forth. And we've been talking about narrowness. If the world is potentially complex enough, that suddenly is not the right tool for you to use. And so there's been a lot of work on that line and maybe something will come out of it. There hasn't been a lot of commercial application so far. Um, and whether or not people come up with a cool commercial application for it, it's really not the solution for AI in the open-ended world. It's just not well suited to that.
0: Let's uh, finish off on the psych concept net area. And I I think I asked a kind of ill-formed question, but I'm going to try to form it better. Do you have any thoughts on how a next step in AI research might be able to extract common sense knowledge from the real world in something like a symbolic form, at least analogously to the way deep learning extracts statistical patterns from example sets?
1: I think it's probably possible. I think that the roots of that are in things like inductive logic programming, but that we need richer innate basis in these systems so they have prior knowledge about how objects work and people work, not everything, but some, like knowing that objects exist, that they persist in time and so forth in order to kind of have a scaffolding such that when these incoming facts arrive, that the system can do something with it. What people have tended to do has no prior knowledge and doesn't work very well. So there's, for example, Tom Mitchell's um, noble but I think unsuccessful attempt called Nell, Never Ending Language Alert. Which I guess is still running at Carnegie Mellon. And it tries to extract triples from the world. And sometimes it comes up with things like you know, Barack Obama is the president of the United States. Um, and they're okay. They can be outdated. Um, sometimes the, the facts are really, really um, poor because the system doesn't understand about entity disambiguation, let's say. So it comes up with facts like Barry is a painter. And you're like, well, which Barry? That doesn't really tell me. Yeah. What kind of painter are you? Doing? Is he an artist? Does he do houses? Um, and and so the a lot of the knowledge is kind of under-differentiated in a way that makes it uh, useless. And like the spirit of what I think Mitchell was trying to do is great. And Yejin Choi, again, is doing some stuff in, in, in this vein. I don't think we have the tools yet. I don't think it's impossible. And I think it would be a great area to try to make some advances in.
0: Yeah, it seems to me it's it's fairly close to the, you know, again, like along with language understanding, the core of getting to the next level. Uh, Just thinking out loud here, suppose one were to think through a project somewhat analogous to psych, but with everything we know today about what's happened over the last 30 years and the knowledge we have about cognitive science and cognitive neuroscience, you think it could be considering the stakes involved in getting to a high level AI relatively quickly. Well, could it make sense to do a neo psych using everything we've known now to start over completely from scratch to build this grounding basis for AI?
1: I think it could be a huge deal. I think it's a $500 million project and nobody has, has the appetite for it right now.
0: I wrote down a billion and I said, a billion, who cares? You know, AGI is worth trillions, right?
1: <laughs> I think it'd be well worth doing and you know, after my robots company becomes a huge success or maybe as a spin-out of it or something like that, maybe I'll take that on.
0: I like it, because I think about a billion. You know, billion's what the uh, Europeans wasted on their brain initiative, right?
1: Uh, well, the original budget was a billion euros.
0: Yeah, yeah. And uh, as far as I can tell, not a hell of a lot came out of that. You know, think of the Obama uh, stimulus. It was $700 billion, right? It's like a billion of that, put it in Neopsych or I don't know.
1: Well, it's, it's also less than the investments that, say, Facebook or Google slash Alphabet make in AI each year, but it's not to their taste.
0: Yep, that's contrary to the religion, at least that Google. I mean, you know, Facebook is perhaps a little less monomaniacal, but still mostly dominated in the deep learning approach. Let's hop back a little bit. Again, we hopped around a little bit here, but that's part of the fun of doing a podcast, make it somewhat nonlinear. We were talking about language, something that really hopped out from the book, which resonated with me, is that you said human thought and language are compositional. You know, as are, by the way, most good techniques for doing computer programming. Could you tell our audience what you mean by compositional and sure. uh,
1: why that's relevant? So I'll, I'll actually take a uh, computer programming first. So the way that we build complex computer systems is we build small modules and then we build larger modules out of those smaller modules. You make sure that the small pieces work and then you make bigger pieces outside of them. So that's a form of compositionality. Sentences are the same way. So we have small pieces like nouns and verbs, and we can make more complex pieces like noun phrases and verb phrases, and then we make sentences out of those, and we can make sentences, sub-sentences of other sentences. So I can say, um, I like my new iPhone, and then I can say, you know that I like my new iPhone. And you can say, your friend thinks that you know that I like my new iPhone, and so forth. So you can put together little pieces inside of bigger pieces. That's what compositionality is about. For the most part, the current approaches don't really do that. They look at all the words in a sentence before and after and try to find other sentences um, that have similar vocabulary in them and similar as a kind of complex notion in these systems, but they don't really look at structure in that way. So they don't come back to you and say that you know this clause is about somebody's intention and this other clause is about their perspective on that intention and we're going to put it together in order to make this statement about the world and we're going to derive um, this cumulative description of what's going on. That just isn't really part of the current workflow in AI. There ha- has been work on that kind of thing historically. Um, but right now, because deep learning is making better short-term results, people are focusing there. And I think losing sight of compositionality as really the the core thing we're trying to come up with.
0: And you know, to make a distinction for the audience, there's historically been divide between symbolic uh, AI and sub-symbolic AI, which uh, deep learning and neural nets are the primary example. And historically, symbolic AI has been compositional, or at least in theory could be, while mostly sub-symbolic has not been compositional.
1: The only thing I would add to that is that the distinction itself is confused. So every neural network that I know has, for example, output nodes that are in fact symbols. And so nobody's been ever that clear to me about what sub-symbols really mean. But it is true that they try to make do without certain kinds of representations like operations over variables and structured representations that any programming language from assembly language to Python takes for granted. And I, I think that In a way, they're kind of tying their hands behind their back, taking away one of the most valuable discoveries in in the history of humanity, which is how to write computer programs compositionally.
0: Yep. And that was relatively recent. Hell, I'm, I'm old enough that I remember when people wrote these horrifying, in fact, I did some myself, these horrifying 1500 line Fortran programs that were just ugly bags of spaghetti, right?
1: Yeah, I used to write in basic with all these go-to lines that you know, it was completely not modular. It was a mess. It was hard to debug. And yep. it was hard for someone else to understand your code if they looked at it later because it was not sufficiently modular. It was not, part- I mean, even those programs though, you have to say were compositional in the sense that even a line of basic code um, if A equals B is still a symbolic system. It wasn't a very well structured symbolic system. So, you know, there's symbols at the level of your basic operations and even basic or Fortran or whatever, um, is completely symbolic in that sense. And deep learning systems for the most part, don't allow that in. And you have people like Jeff Hinton trying to say, don't go there. Don't look at that kind of stuff. Um, it's evil. It's old fashioned. Don't touch it. Um, but you know, all of the world's computer programs are essentially are built on this kind of stuff. And then the more sophisticated stuff, anything that any, you know, reputable software engineer would write now um, is compositional at a very high level. So, you know, you build modules on top of modules and you have inheritance and all of these kinds of stuff. It's um, that, very much uh, from the symbol uh, manipulating tradition.
0: And you're going to talk about, before you do that, though, you're going to talk about how human language is composition. Let me do a little sidebar on something I've stumbled across recently. I'm not sure I understood it well enough to say this accurately. So I'll lay it out to you, get your comments. And that's uh, some of the newer forms of neural networks, particularly uh, graph neural nets and their closely related message passing neural nets, seem to have some aspects of uh, compositionality to them, or at least they act upon compositional components.
1: They're better. So the graph networks have a graph structure, which is from straight symbol manipulation. Um, And I I think that that's a prerequisite. Essentially, it's saying that knowledge is represented as things that look like a network or a tree or a graph in technical terms. And that allows you, for example, to formally specify the relationships between things. So you can say that Molly is the father of Gary or something like that, or (laughs) mother of Gary, excuse me. So you can you can make specific claims about relations as opposed to a lot of neural networks, it's just like character by character, you feed in a sentence. Um, and so I think that's a step in the right direction. I think there's still too little, in general, formal reasoning over those systems, not a great way of representing abstractions as opposed to specific facts, but I think it's a step in the right direction. Okay.
0: Let's hop back to human language and its composite. Compositionality. There we go.
1: Well, so, I mean, I already gave you one one example of of compositionality, you know, the sentence about, you know, I like an iPhone. So, an iPhone is a noun phrase. iPhone is a noun. Um, We're putting those together to pick out a particular iPhone. Um, Then we're using like as a verb, and we make a verb phrase, like an iPhone. Then we have a subject to it, I like an iPhone. And then we can make that whole clause part of another sentence. So, I can say, you know that I like an iPhone. And so, you know... You as a noun, no as a verb, and then we have this whole clause that represents an idea, um, a proposition, as, as some people would call it, of I like an iPhone. And so um, we have a whole set of verbs that are what we call propositional attitudes. So you know that I like an iPhone, or you deny that I like an iPhone, or you doubt that I like an iPhone. Um, and you have all of these different possibilities. Compositionality is about the whole being computed from the parts, so once I know how verbs like doubt work, and I know how nouns like iPhone work, then I can put together the whole sentence. You know, once I know all of those pieces, and I can derive an interpretation of something in terms of how its pieces work, which is actually exactly how, um, you know, computer compilers and computer interpreters work, is, is they make a composition of the components that tells them what to do.
0: Yeah, I like the phrase, was it, was it the whole being computed from the parts? That's right. Yeah, I love that. That should be people's number one takeaway on what we're talking about here. Uh, Let's pop up a level. We've talked about a lot of details in and out uh, and around of deep learning and kind of uh, alternative approaches. More broadly, what are some other approaches to AI that may not be getting enough attention in your opinion?
1: Well, I I think that all the action right now is actually on hybrid models. And some people are actually building them. Not enough people are talking about why they're important as opposed to deep learning. So, I, again, worry that Jeff Hinton has too much influence on the field. He's been going around. You know, he's the godfather of deep learning, going around saying that we shouldn't build hybrid models, that we should just use deep learning, that symbol manipulation is old-fashioned. But if you look at what people actually do when they want to get something done, they actually do build hybrid models. So AlphaGo is an example of this. It uses deep learning to recognize patterns, and then it uses tree search, Monte Carlo tree search in particular, which is straight symbolic operation um, to actually search the space of possibilities. I go there, you go there, let's look at a bunch of different possibilities and add a up. That's a symbolic computer program of the classic sort. They combine that with deep learning. So that's a hybrid model. Uh, Josh Tenenbaum, um, our mutual friend, um, works on hybrid models. He's got one on Vision recently with a bunch of people on IBM where you use deep learning to recognize parts of images, but then you do a lot of reasoning about what those parts of those images are and what they relate to each other, you use a lot of symbolic or he uses a lot of uh, symbolic operations in order to do that. So that half of the house, so to speak, looks like computer programming and the and the, the front end of the house, if you will, um, looks like deep learning. Another example of this Rubik's cube thing that got so much press, the part that actually does the solving of the cube, namely figuring out where I should turn, you know, the blue face should rotate 90 degrees, that stuff is actually done by a symbolic system. And then it's some of the mapping between what you see in the physical joint forces you should be applying um, that are done by the deep learning system. So that's a hybrid system. There is just a new Facebook kind of web search thing that's a hybrid system. I think that's where the real action is going to be, is in trying to figure out theoretically sound and intricate, intimate ways of bringing together these traditions it's not a binary proposition you know Hinton presents it as if it's either the new stuff or the old stuff and what we really want is even newer stuff that combines some of the deep learning stuff or things like that also you know probabilistic programming bayesian systems a whole lot of kind of statistical techniques i won't say which ones but some of those with the more classical knowledge representation stuff that's the other half of today's conversation that's where the action is right now i think it's just getting started but that's where you know i expect the winners to come from
0: how about things like self-driving cars? I would sort of expect them to have a hybrid nature.
1: A lot of them do, and I mean, that doesn't come out in the media. So what comes out in the media is if there's a neural network involved anywhere, a system is called a neural network system. But you could do the opposite. You could say if, it's a, if there are any symbols in the system, it's a symbolic system, and that's silly. But there's a, there's a huge bias in how these things are, are reported. Similarly, the OpenAI, when they talked about the Rubik's system, said a, a pair of neural networks learns to do such and such. And you have to kind of read the fine print to realize that it's not just the neural networks that are doing the system here, but there's also this um, classic 20-year-old symbolic algorithm that's kind of at the core of the so-called solving part of it. So th- there's a lot of hype around neural networks and people present their systems that way, even when there's other stuff going on.
0: Yeah, funny. I had a conversation I don't know, six months ago with one of the smartest people in the world, I would say, not in the field of AI, but in a field not too far from AI. And he had somehow extracted the idea that the only thing happening in AI these days was deep
1: learning. I was uh, fairly shocked. I had to disabuse him of that notion. It's a widespread misunderstanding in part because the hype machine for deep learning is so powerful within various corporations that have a lot at stake. Um, and OpenAI is you know, actually a, no longer a nonprofit or no longer fully a nonprofit. Um, so that fits under that umbrella. So Zach Lipton called it weapons-grade PR. So you have a lot of weapons-grade PR behind neural networks. Um, and it's a nice story to tell the media about, hey, these are like brains and they work great. But they're not really that much like brains. And it turns out you need other systems to kind of prop them up and so forth. But that's a more complicated story and people aren't as receptive to it.
0: What about evolutionary approaches? That happens to be something dear to my heart. You know, my deepest grounding in a scientific field is evolutionary computing. And as early as 2001, I did some work with evolutionary neural nets and other evolutionary approaches to building game-playing agents. What's going on in evolutionary AI these days?
1: I think it has a lot of potential, but it hasn't succeeded. And my take on it is because everybody's trying to recapitulate the period between the beginning of life and getting to, I don't know, dog cognition. And what they want is not dog cognition. They really want human cognition. But starting from pre-bacterium isn't going to get there. So you start with systems that are total blank slates. They don't have the equivalent of a genetic basis of a vertebrate brain plant, for example. You know, it took close to a billion years of evolution to get a vertebrate brain plan. A very hard-won evolutionary struggle, if I can anthropomorphize a little bit. Um, and then things pick up in pace from there. But the AI systems that people build are like the you know, bacteria or pre-bacteria level. And so you have a grad student work on it for a year, and at the end, they don't have that much to show for it because they've basically started from zero. You know, the most interesting thing in my view, and it's a little bit species chauvinist, but the most interesting thing that happened in evolution in the last few hundred million years is the evolution of people. Because people have such a different niche from other creatures and they have these amazing means of cultural transmission that you know there are little dim reflections of in other primates. But there's really something special. And people have this language thing um, but the whole thing didn't take that long to evolve. You know, maximally seven million years and maybe as few as like a few hundred thousand. Well, why did it happen so fast? Is because the primate brain plan on which the human brain plan evolved was already incredibly sophisticated. So it already had color vision. It already had you know, very sophisticated obstacle avoidance, very sophisticated social cognition, um, maybe not as sophisticated as ours, but still pretty sophisticated. And so if you evolve from a primate brain plan, you get all kinds of interesting things that happen. If you evolve from a bacterium, it's just going to take a long time. It's not impossible, but... You know, you need to have a lot of kind of lucky selections um, or maybe not lucky, you know, natural selection, you know, very fit selections. You need a lot of them um, to get from point A to point B, which is why it took, you know, so many hundreds of millions of years.
0: Actually, took longer than you think. Uh, Life's at least three point five billion years old, and the uh, vertebrate lines didn't really get roll until the Cambrian explosion, a mere five hundred and fifty million years ago. So uh, the single cell and the colonial species were basically doing their thing for almost three billion years before the.
1: And and most of the work is recapitulating that three billion, and most of the interest would be in recapitulating the more recent five hundred million.
0: Yeah. And that goes to your earlier suggestion and hint that maybe the answer is building, you know, these structures from which to let AIs work from, you know, these uh, databases of what is known about the world. Why why have to learn all that stuff the hard way, right?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I wrote a book about this called The Birth of the Mind, which was about how a small number of genes builds a complex brain. And the part of the basic takeaway was that, let's say, the vertebrate brain plan is a very complex library of self-assembling subroutines. And you need the library in order to get going. The reason that people can build a website in a day now is because you have huge libraries to draw on, lots of subroutines, and that's why we were able to evolve—or you know, not we, but um, natural selection was able to evolve people relatively quickly from a primate basis. There are a lot of subroutines and libraries in the genetic code that are really useful. Whereas, if you look at a bacterium, there's just not that much of the library. There's some stuff for metabolism, but there's not a lot of stuff there for cognition. And so, if you're you're working with that, you. You have to reinvent a lot.
0: I think there's a, a good hint there on, uh, on ways to move faster. One last area I want to ask you your thoughts about is the old field of cognitive architectures, you know, things like SOAR and ACTAR, etc. Is there anything happening in those kinds of fields that might be relevant to the next big step?
1: I mean, there's a lot of people still working on it. I think John Laird is maybe one of the biggest. He's at Michigan and, and you know, his stuff is worth looking at. I think that the general... Issue is first of all, those things were mostly built originally for cognitive psychology rather than AI. The discussion right now is mostly around AI. Another issue in psychology is they might be true insofar as they go, but in a way they go too far. So they're compatible with a lot of different things. I think that's okay, but People are expecting that if I choose SOAR, then automatically, or ACT-R, whatever, that that gives me the answer to cognition, whereas it's kind of like a notation that could allow you to build a model of cognition rather than the full model of cognition. In terms of AI, they're not, as far as I know, all that practical right now. I think that the intuitions behind what those people are trying to do are good though, and I think that there are lessons to be learned from looking at how they go about problems, like how do you train a person to fly an airplane or learn algebra? What are the steps that a person goes through? We don't necessarily want our AI to recapitulate those, but um, knowing something about what people do in the process of learning these higher order skills might be very helpful uh, towards AI, even if you know there's not like off the shelf library code that you know you wanna plug into your natural language understanding system.
0: So maybe to put words in your mouth, there may not be anything right there today with the existing uh, models, but it's probably useful for people to know about them as we think about the future.
1: I think it's 100% useful to to know about them. Um, And it goes back to something else that we've been talking about, which is this kind of intellectual narrowness of just knowing, you know, the math of, of gradient descent versus understanding the broader set of problems that people have tried to approach in cognition in order to recognize limitations and recognize avenues of attack and so forth. And really, rebooting AI is a cognitive scientist's or pair of cognitive scientist's perspective on what you might do in AI to move forward beyond the the statistical techniques that have been well mastered but aren't sufficient. Yeah, we'll come
0: back to that at the very end, but I'm going to now hop to something else you talked about, which are some of the dangers from the data mining approach. Data mining is not, I think these might be your words. I'm looking at my notes here. Data mining, if not done with great care and thoughtfulness, can rebuild obsolete social biases. You give an example using Google Image Search. When we search for professor, only about 10% of the top-ranked images were women, perhaps reflecting Hollywood's portrayal of college life, but out of touch with current reality, in which closer to 50% of professors are women.
1: It's a really endemic problem. And people think it's easy to solve and it's not. So the the famous version was that some African Americans were labeled by Google as gorillas. That was in 2015. And Google got terrible press out of it and they quickly solved the problem. So it won't happen anymore. But there's just more and more versions of that problem. And there's no currently – even I think possibility of systematically solving it. So there's lots and lots of variations on that and your listeners can go home and try things like um, uh, uncle and niece, for example, and you'll probably find that they're mostly white, for example, even though, you know, white people are, I guess, a minority of the world's population, um, but they're better represented in the data set and the system doesn't know the difference between what's represented in the data system and what's out there in the world. And so it doesn't, capture it and every time one of these things is fixed and there was you know cases like this in 2012 that were fixed in 2013 or or whatever 2015 17 19 so forth problems just keep popping up but it's like whack-a-mole and people put band-aids if i'm mixing my metaphor sorry um, people put band-aids on them they fix one of these problems but there are hundreds or thousands of potential instantiations nobody notices them and they just keep happening And it's exactly about perpetuating existing statistics rather than understanding what's going on. If if you think about what a good economist like Stephen Levitt of of Freakonomics fame does, is he takes a bunch of bad data from a bunch of bad studies, figures out how to decouple them, deconfound them in order to derive a sensible conclusion. And we need ultimately for AI to do that. So it gets a bunch of bad samples. It needs to understand what's at stake, what's the history here, and compensate for prior history and so forth, and come up with something that's in line with our values or objectives or whatever. And if you don't understand our values and what we're trying to get at, it won't work. So if you took as your data set, this will be hypothetical, but you you took... um, the proportion of musicians that were ballet dancers, of, of, of orchestra quality, or orchestra caliber musicians that, that were ballet dancers in 1910, and you know you discovered zero. So you put in your system that the weight. Um, you know that you should actually penalize people for being ballet dancers because no ballet dancers are orchestra level musicians in 1900 so you, your system builds in this bias and then you discover later humans discovered later that that's partly because there was bias on the part of the people who were choosing the musicians they didn't want to have women in there they thought women weren't qualified so then we move to neat blind auditions and suddenly there are lots of women in orchestras but you have this historical data and you have some data dredging machine that doesn't understand the difference between the historical data and the recent data doesn't understand that deep line auditions change things and it just puts it all together, gloms all the data. And in that way, it perpetuates the bias.
0: Now, very interestingly, in that long discussion about data mining, you use the word understand about 12 times, which tells us that if we want our AIs to solve these problems for us, they have to understand, which they don't today.
1: Yeah. The defense of deep learning people is to say it's hard to define understanding, which would be like saying that since we can't quite define pornography and you know the famous quote that I'm alluding to, that we shouldn't have any policies about it. And, and that's silly. So it is hard to define understanding. We tried to give it by example, primarily. We gave lots of examples. Like understanding is being able to read a children's story, make inferences about who did what to whom, where, when and why. You know, understanding is about being able to analyze those journalist questions when you're confronted with a narrative or an article or, or things like that.
0: I just had an odd thought. Perhaps the rejection of the concept of understanding from perspective of the Neuronet folks is at least analogous to the rejection of internal process by the behaviorists.
1: It's very, very similar. There, there's a similar instinct behind them. So, um, you know, both the behaviorists and their latter-day reincarnates, the the neural network people, want to derive everything from data. They don't want to talk a lot about mental representation. Behaviorists didn't want to talk about it at all, and neural network people mostly don't. So, they actually come from a very similar part of intellectual space. They're both trying to define everything mathematically and kind of missing the importance of knowledge representation, innateness, and so forth.
0: That makes sense to me. Uh, Final bit on this section. I love this point that you made, which I had never thought of, but it's going to become more and more uh, true. The heavy dependence of contemporary AI on training sets can also lead to a pernicious echo chamber effect in which a system ends up being trained on data that it generated itself earlier. I have noticed that If you use Google to look for odd things, which I do all day, every day, more and more of search spam is obviously generated by rather stupid AIs, right? And something mining the web is going to be mining this AI generated garbage and over time that's going to get better and better and more and more of the content on the net is going to be AI generated and then if it's processing its own as you say its own generated data or at least it's by relatives of itself other AIs using similar toolkits I don't know what the bad effects could come from that but it seems like that's not a good idea.
1: Sucking your own fumes never a good idea. <laughs>
0: Yeah, exactly. But, you know, it's, I mean, that's just actually true. It has to be happening right now. Right? Because It does. I
1: mean, the particular examples I think we gave, unless this was in a, an article that we wrote and not in the book, was about translation. Um, and so, you know, some translations are done by Google Translate, particularly l- languages where not a lot of people are writing in Wikipedia. And then that stuff gets fed back into Google Translate. You know, it crystallizes its own mistakes some of the time, I would imagine.
0: That's right, right. You did have that example in the book. All right, I'm going to head for the home stretch here and talk a little bit about artificial general intelligence. When I look at the page for your company, Robust AI, it said, help us make robots smart, collaborative, robust, safe, flexible, and genuinely autonomous. It sounds an awful lot like AGI to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you had AGI in a bottle, it would do all of that. If you don't have AGI in a bottle and nobody does, then you can try to take steps towards it. We're not promising that we're going to deliver AGI anytime soon. Of course we'd like to position ourselves to, you know, be able to help in that discovery. I think each of those criteria are steps towards AGI or, you know, are, are metrics that, that could measure uh, progress towards AGI. We're trying to find commercial cases that are steps along the way. You know, we, we can't promise that we're going to solve all of it in a day. But if we can make robots that are noticeably more flexible than the robots that we have now and noticeably more reliable, then that's obviously going to really expand the scope of application of robotics. Right now, robots have to be in in cages or they have to be in very uh, carefully defined environments. You have situations like The part of the big problem with the Tesla Model 3 is that Musk overestimated how easy it would be to get robots to work in production in complex assembly lines. So, you know, when things aren't exactly the way that they were in your blueprint um, and you have different kinds of objects in different kinds of places and so forth, current systems just aren't that good at it. To really get full service version of Rosie the Robot might take us you know, close to to uh, AGI, and maybe there's some intermediate point that's not Rosie the Robot, but that's at least you know safe in a domestic environment and a lot better than than you know what we've got now. Um, similarly, like you could think about package delivery. You know, right now, people are building all of these kind of four wheel cargo carriers that bring something to your street, but they don't bring it up the stairs, right? And so that's not really what people want. I mean, that's not why they've been paying FedEx for. You know, the last thirty years, to you know, have to go out to the street to collect the package when the delivery guy is there. They want FedEx to bring it to their door, and building a robot to do that wouldn't, I think, be full AGI, but it would require a lot of reliability, a lot of autonomy, a lot of flexibility, um, of the sorts that we're talking about.
0: Yep. I, having formerly been a guy in the domain name business at one brief period in my career, I always register domain names, which I think are indicative of the future. And one of the ones I grabbed about a year and a half ago is Proto-AGI. And the things you're talking about there strike me exactly as Proto-AGI. And I think that's going to be a very hot area for companies in the coming few years. Certainly hope so. <laughs> so I think you might well be in the right place. Let's bump it up a little bit. You have to have thought about AGI. Uh, what are your thoughts about timeframe to Really getting to AGI,
1: it's hard to know for sure. I mean, I always think about like in the you know early '90s, nobody had any idea how big the internet would be, and they had no idea that you know social networking would change national politics I and mean, all kinds of stuff. So you know, it, it's hard to really predict the future. The example we give in the book is in Blade Runner; they have androids that are you know fully able to blend in with human beings, and at one point they stop at a payphone and this is sort of astonishingly anachronistic because you know cell phones were basically became widespread in the year 2000, and these robots are 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 ways off. So predicting is very hard, but what we, we can say for sure, I think, is no commercial system is remotely close to natural language understanding, which is certainly a prerequisite of AGI. No commercial system is remotely close to the kind of flexible dynamic reasoning that people can do. No current commercial system is close to being able to transfer between different tasks in the way that you were from one war game to another. These things don't exist yet. They may exist in somebody's lab, but they're not widely known. And so it's going to be a while. You know, that much we can be sure of. It's not happening next week. It's probably not happening in five to 10 years. It might happen in 20. It's it's really hard to project. And it might happen in 100 because the problems are really, really hard. Nobody has a bead on how to develop enough understanding of the world in, in machine interpretable form right now. For example, there are a lot of problems that have to be solved. So you know, my guess is somewhere between 20 and 100 years, maybe closer to 50. And it's a wide confidence interval. People always want, you know, a number. Like Ray Kurzweil loves to say, like a 2031. Anybody that gives you a precise number is bullshitting you. It has to be a confidence interval, meaning, you know, within these boundaries with some likelihood. We can't do better than that.
0: The way I satirize Ray's estimate is I say, yeah, February 26th at 1130 p.m.
1: in 2042, we will achieve AGI, right? On, on West 5th Street in Dallas, right? I mean, it's like that hyper-precision makes it compelling to many people, but it's actually a, a clear sign that it's bullshit.
0: Yeah, it's all about the error bars, right? I'm coming exactly. about with you, it's somewhere between 15 and 100. And if, if I had to put down a small bet, I'd say 40 to 50, something like that. But who the hell knows? Could happen tomorrow.
1: Well, no, it couldn't happen tomorrow. I mean, that's the one thing it really can't do. It's just not happening tomorrow.
0: Five years is probably the the shortest possible period, but I shouldn't say shortest possible. Anyway, let's not speculate any further. We know it's uncertain, not tomorrow, but probably within the lifetime of people who are already alive, which is interesting, Uh, which brings us to the topic that we have to talk about at least a little bit, even though I'm bored to tears with it, is AGI safety. What are your thoughts about that?
1: I mean, the the line we have in the book is, is don't worry about killer robots, um, at least anytime soon. First of all, they've never shown any interest in our affairs or in attacking us. So worry about bad actors misusing AI, but don't worry about the robots rising up. And second, if they do come and attack, lock your door. And um, if that doesn't work, climb a tree, because robots don't know how to open doors. They don't know how to climb trees. They're they're really not that bright right now. So we don't have anything in the near term to worry about.
0: Alrighty, righty. I think we will wrap it up. Unfortunately, we had lost some time with technical difficulties. I had about three or four more questions, but that's all right. This has been extraordinarily interesting, extraordinarily uh, useful, and I would uh, strongly encourage people that are interested in questions like this to go out and Gary's book. Gary had a co-author. Who was your co-author? Let's give him some credit, too.
1: My, my co-author is Ernie Davis. He's a computer scientist at NYU, and 95% of the really cool examples in the book are his.
0: All right. So uh, Ernie and Gary's book, Rebooting AI, if you find this at all interesting, go read it. Thank you very much, Gary, for our wonderful conversation. Thank you very much. That's great. Production services and audio editing by Jared Jane's Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.